0: Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Right now, a really important conversation for Global Wall Street. We're going to go geek on you, and we want you to keep up. Robert Lucas invented my concept of expectations. The Giant from Chicago was one of my first interviews when I joined Bloomberg. Always controversial within economics. And William Dudley of Berkeley, Goldman Sachs, and of course the former Fed president for New York, has driven the conversation this morning, making it clear this is a Federal Reserve system is fighting the last war. Let us go to the economist economist Dashiell Hammett. This is some Jeremy Rudd's controversial paper right now. This is the great detective author of another time and place. Nobody thinks clearly no matter what they pretend. That's why people hang on so tight to their beliefs and opinions because compared to the haphazard way they've arrived at it, even the goofiest opinion seems wonderfully clear sane and self-evident. Bill Dudley, that's in Jeremy Rudd's paper on expectations. Is our belief in inflation expectations, our belief in gaming the future
1: through what people believe the future will believe, is it over? I think the key question is how do households respond to high inflation? Do they revise up their expectations of inflation and does that affect their behavior? Or are there threshold effects, which Jeremy Rudd talks about, where, in other words, they only react once inflation and wages get to a certain level by actually starting to change where they are actually willing to work, you know, switch to, from one employer to another. So I think Jeremy's raising some interesting questions about uh, is our model of how inflation is generated correct or not?
2: Bill, the essence of your piece this morning, I think, has been at the epicenter of your call for much of this year. You think the Federal Reserve is going to be too late and when they start, they're going to have to move quickly. They're going to have to move faster than people expect. What's the argument that underpins that call, Bill?
1: Well, I think the issue is that the Fed learned some lessons from the last crisis, but they don't really apply to the current recovery. Lessons from the last crisis were was that inflation, we had trouble getting, pushing inflation back up to 2%. Uh, they thought full employment was uh, at a higher level of the unemployment rate than it actually turned out to be. Uh, so they revised their monetary policy framework, and they said, well, we're really going to really what, work really hard to push inflation up and we're gonna re- work really hard to push the unemployment down to level past full employment. Well, that's great for that last cycle, but what about this cycle? We already have uh, inflation above the Fed's target um, and we have a lot of uncertainty about how much slack there actually is in the labor market. So I think the risk is that they're fighting the last war. Now the problem isn't inflation too low, the problem is inflation too high. Um, and I think we also have all this, all these questions about You know, how much slack do we actually have in the U.S. labor market?
2: today? The one question is always hard, Bill, but it's a question we have to ask. When do you think this Federal Reserve will realize, come to a realization of what you believe and what will lead them to have that rethink?
1: I think the interesting question they have in their current set of projections is they have the unemployment rate going below their view of what's maximum sustainable employment in 2022 uh, and staying there through 2024. Yet they have in their forecast inflation falling over that period, and they have the Fed not getting back even to a neutral monetary policy setting by the end of 2024. So I think what they're going to realize is that if monetary policy is this easy for this long at this tight of a labor market, uh, they're going to have a more of an inflation consequence that they have written than than what they've written down in their current set of projections.
3: Bill, if you're right. I think they'll
1: be forced to go faster.
3: Bill, if you're right, why have we not seen more material wage pressure, wage increases that actually exceed the pace of consumer inflation more dramatically?
1: I think it's still early days. I mean, we've just emerged from the pandemic or in, over the last year, and the unemployment rates come down sharply over, over the last year. I think it's really too soon to say what's going to happen to wages. Uh, the employment cost index is the most reliable indicator on wages. That only comes out once a quarter. So uh, we're still look, we're looking backwards at sort of old information.
2: Bill, you've made the argument they have to get back to neutral more quickly. You've talked about the speed. Let's talk about the speed limit. What is the speed limit now? How high can they go with the Fed funds rate in an economy like this one?
1: Well, I think they can go a lot faster than what they penciled in. I mean, if you look what you know, people have reacted to the last uh, FOMC minute meeting as, as the Fed being really hawkish. But if you look, if it takes three years to get to a median federal funds rate of 1.8 percent, that's not a very fast rate of, of tightening. Uh, a comparison would be the 2004-2006 episode. But the Fed raised the funds rate a quarter point, Seventeen consecutive fmc meetings, taking the funds rate from one percent to five and a quarter percent. I don't think it would be that extreme, that but, it, but it could be. It could, but it could be something a lot more than what they've got priced in.
2: It's Seventeen. I mean, I'm not now. that extreme, Bill. But I'm just trying to understand whether this economy, with this much debt, can can take those kind of moves. Well, I think
1: you're right that uh, that they're not going to get all the way to probably five percent because the economy will start to you know react to that to that burden. But it seems to me that it's reasonable to think that the Federal Reserve is going to have to get to a tight monetary policy setting before the end of 2024.
2: Bill, great conversation and fantastic piece. Bloomberg column out this morning on Bloomberg.com and on the Bloomberg Terminal. Bill Dudley there, the wonderful Bill Dudley, formerly of the New York Fed and now Bloomberg Opinion columnist and senior advisor to Bloomberg Economics. Christian Nolte, Deutsche Bank, private bank, global CIO, Christian what should these central banks do in an environment like the one we're in right now?
4: So I think very important, right, where the market is changing. It's not new that there is inflation coming in. We have always talked about base effects, but now, especially in Europe, uh, gas prices really skyrocketing yesterday and today even more. I think there's really the, the scenario that there is this, call it stagflationary supply side shock. And of course, you have the question what the central banks should be doing. And let's not forget, you talked about the Fed. Um, here, the ECB is not having the goal of, of really economic growth. It's just price stability. And that's why they are probably concerned about this if we stay at these levels or even go further up. But I think they are not in a situation to really increase rates as you would normally do if you see inflationary pressures. They are still saying it's transitory. We are more in the camp that inflation will stay higher. And if you talk about fighting wars, I agree it's not the inflationary war it's a bit more inflationary. However, that's not bad for the central banks if you get a bit more inflation in. The question though is, is it too fast now and they need to act?
3: Christian, is tapering tightening?
4: (laughs) I would say, uh, of course it is, yes, because you take, uh, let's say, money you don't supply to the market anymore. The question though is, uh, what's the speed of tapering? Do you do it step by step or do it very fast and the markets can react to that. And I think that's where the central banks are quite confident to get this done. So I would not, um, let's say, it's the same situation. Combine this with 2013 taper tantrum. That's, I think, not the
2: case. Christian, are you a buyer of this weakness in this equity market this morning? Sorry, say again? Are you a buyer of the weakness we're seeing on the screens this morning in this equity yet, market?
4: We are cautious in the markets. We have been expecting a downturn, and we, we don't think it's too, too early now. So we are waiting a little bit to, to go back into the markets. I would say if you look at the U.S., for example, I wouldn't be surprised if you see a setback to the 200-day moving average in the S&P. I wouldn't rule that out because there are still some, some topics that could weigh on the market also in the next days and weeks. So you see the energy prices, gas prices in Europe, coal prices in China, so China GDP probably coming maybe even weaker than expected. You have the earnings season to start, uh, where I would say the growth rate is not the same as we have seen before. And, and that's because still growth there, don't get me wrong. But I think there will be some better opportunities throughout the next days and weeks.
0: Christian, we're being buffeted by the temporaries you write in your important note recently. How do corporations in Europe, how do corporations in America, how do corporations in Asia adapt to the temporary six standard deviation shock of net gas?
4: Well, the issue with gas is with the companies is that uh, they normally have, let's say, contracts with their clients, so they cannot increase the prices as the, the incoming prices. And that's why their margin is shrinking or even go, getting negative. And that's why some companies have been saying we are reducing output. And of course, that's weighing on growth. And then you have an issue with, with the growth in general, because everyone needs energy. Uh, and I think that's why it's so important. If it's going so fast, I would expect that there is the the Governments are saying, okay, what can we do through this? Uh, do we take some actions on price caps? We've seen that already here in Europe, in Spain, for example. The UK is obviously <laughs> discussing that, but also the European Union will certainly discuss that.
2: Hey, Christian, great to catch up. What a morning for it. Christian, Christian, Christian Nolting, Deutsche Bank, private bank, global CIO.
0: This is a joy. It's always a joy because she is what we try to do in America. I'm not going to mince words. She started out challenged, overcame dyslexia, was picking up a phone at a real estate company and said, wait a minute, I can do this. This is the only voice I want to talk to on the insanity of real estate right now. Barbara Corcoran, of course, you know her from Shark Tank. She joins us now. But Barbara, as you give the spirit to small business and all like you invented, I need to talk to you about the pricing of housing in America. I just looked up at Corcoran Group, and I'm going to pay $34,000 on taxes on a piece in Brooklyn. How have we done this? How have we priced America out of real estate?
5: Well, most people are priced out of the market. You're exactly right. The market has been going absolutely bonkers with no end in sight. No prices nationwide have gone up 18%. I've never seen an increase like that in the 30 years. The last 30 years, I think was the last time. No one could believe what's going on. In fact, if you want to buy a house, I don't know how you did on your purchase, uh, but everything's being sold in bidding wars, or 60% of the houses. I mean, people yeah. are so uncomfortable, and yet they keep paying the prices, and there's no end in sight.
0: Barbara, I looked at the me- the regression, rather, of housing in 04, 05, 06, and you know what? We uh-huh. regress back to the mean. You uh-huh. lived that at Corcoran Group.
5: Are we going to do the same thing this time? I did. Are we going to do it again? No, it's not the same kind of a market. No, 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 no. You know what you have? Today's market is fueled by individual buyers who want a better place to live. They bring their businesses home. They want to raise their kids. When we had that drop off, it was fueled by investors, house flippers, uh, poor mortgages that shouldn't have been uh, mortgage uh, mortgage companies that shouldn't have been lending money at the time. I mean, it was a it was a false market with a false bottom, and it fell. We're not going to have that now. I'm just hoping that the prices cool down a bit, because as you started. To say just a minute ago, so many people are left out of the market. It just seems unfair just to have a house. You have to feel like you have to be a pro investor bidding up the prices. It's, it's just insanity. I've never seen anything like it. Barbara, this
3: is for individuals, but it's also for small corporations. And I know you do speak with a lot of them. I'm wondering how much oh. this dampens their enthusiasm, their optimism, their willingness to hire, to expand if the fixed costs are going up as quickly as they are.
5: With the fixed costs going up for business, that's not always true. All right. Uh, Commercial rents are much lower than they were. If you you were talking about business, I'm assuming, right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So their fixed costs are actually lower. People are renting less space. Uh, People who have large floor plates uh, in large metropolitan areas are negotiating their way out of the leases. They're subleasing the space. Retail prices have come down. No one wants a large retail space anymore because it's a shop front versus holding all of the inventory. They don't do that anymore, they sell it online. So actually the cost of doing business has come down and of course, uh, the problem—the main problem with all of uh, business right now—is finding the right people. That is the single largest challenge. Whether you own a restaurant, a shoe shop, or a giant corporation, hiring and finding and luring in the right people has been the biggest challenge.
3: But Barbara, we have not seen the increase in wages that we would have expected, given all of the labor market shortages that we hear about. Mm. In fact, it still lags behind the pace of inflation. Bill Dudley, formerly of the New York Fed, was just on the show, and he. Was is saying he thinks that it will accelerate pretty dramatically in the near term. Do you see evidence from small business owners that they are willing to pay up that much more dramatically in the upcoming months that will lead to that kind
5: of wage inflation? You know what? They ha- they're they going to not have a choice. So far, they've had a choice. They've cut back on their staff. They intentionally cut back on their overhead. They got rid of everybody they really didn't want working for them uh, during the pandemic. I mean, all these companies slimmed down and got their house in order. Whether or not they're willing to pay a higher wage remains to be seen. But so far, they are not. People yeah. are holding on to yeah. their profits and are very reluctant to let any of that money out. Barbara, it's wanted, just, it's more, I don't want to use the word selfish, but I would say, uh, yes, people want to, a little greed has set in, but they're going to have to, they're going to have to give something.
0: Barbara, up one final sure. question. You and your support with AT&T are uh-huh. actually out there talking to real people. Uh-huh. These are webinars and things like that where yes. Barbara Corcoran folks is talking to uh-huh. people about small businesses. Let me raise my hand in the back room of the Zoom call. Barbara, could you do now what you did then?
5: Uh, yes, I could, because you know what? The pandemic has pr- uh, proven that. And that's what the purpose of the Business Unusual webinar series presented by at t actually is. We're trying to give people the tools they need to reinvent themselves mm-hmm. with very little money in their hand. And today's market accommodates that. Everybody is Rewriting their business plan, redoing the way they deliver their products to customers, reinventing how they could attract customers in, and that's actually why AT&T decided to do the webinar series because a lot of people don't know how to do that. Okay. I know how to do it. I know I'll how to say, get the people yeah. who could tell people how to do it.
0: Barbara, I'm looking for four bedrooms, Upper East Side. See what you can do this afternoon, Barbara Corcoran, Thank you so much. <laughs> uh, with her venture I'll tell partners. You what.
5: I'm going to give you my,
0: a sublease on my place. Yeah, you got it. Yeah, sub-sublease. <laughs> Thank you so much, Barbara at uh, Corcoran. Sobrado Joppa joins us right now with SocGen. Society General is a U.S. rate strategist. Sabrata, it's an interesting move here. Let's start with what has not happened. Why are yields not moving like net gas?
6: Well, because of the fact that, you know, we're, we're a big market and we look at fundamentals, um, you know, and uh, bond yields in general in the U.S. have been somewhat, you know, slow to react to what's happening on the commodity complex because it's not that big of an issue. I think that the speculative moves in gas especially right. are quite <clears> speculative. So I'm not sure that there the should be a reaction in the bond market from moves in that gas. But broadly speaking, I think higher uh, oil prices and fears of inflation have been driving yields higher. And I think that that sort of trend is here to stay for the remainder of the year.
0: Among others, Lisa Bramowitz has really emphasized a paper out there and the insatiable demand for it. If I like yield at 1.35, price down, yield up, I got to really like it at 1.55. Is there a huge thirst here to buy the dip in bonds
6: i think what you're going to see from investors is some level of caution given the fact that we've seen this sort of very sharp move from around 130 prior to the FOMC meeting a couple of weeks ago to around 155 and the momentum seems to be towards higher yields given headlines around inflation. I think what you're going to see over the next coming weeks is more cautious approach in the bond market. You know, you're not going to see dip buyers come in right away. They're going to need to see 10-year yields stabilize, I would say, between say 150 and 170 before they come in and start buying the market here. So I think over the near term, they probably stay in the sidelines, especially heading into payrolls this weekend. And then beyond that, I think if we stabilize into a new range, then you'll start seeing investors coming in
2: and buying the dip. So Badra, many investors, many legends of the investment world are worried about this S word. And I want to discuss it with you. I think there's a difference between being an economist and looking at stagflation and saying, the stag piece of this does not work. We just had an ISM mm-hmm. north of 60, gross expected to have a four handle through next year. That's not stagflation. Market participants are looking at rate of change and saying, look, growth's decelerating and inflation expectations are still elevated and maybe they might accelerate into a new year. I want to understand how a bond market behaves in that kind of environment of decelerating growth and persistently high inflation. What does that look like?
6: So I think that inflation expectations should rise modestly, especially given where inflation expectations are in the U.K. or Europe. This is not just a U.S. phenomena. You're seeing global inflation expectations rise quite meaningfully. We actually did a chart comparing inflation expectations across different regions last week in our weekly. And what you notice is that U.S. 10-year break-evens, for instance, have been very much in a range uh, and and sort of it, until yesterday, they've kind of been hesitant to break above 240. So I think if inflation risks persist, you're going to see uh, room for uh, break-evens to continue to rise from here on. But broadly speaking, I think that the... Uh, the fundamental picture is very supportive. Growth is quite strong. Um, you know, yes, we're seeing a revision revisions to growth in the third quarter, but that's just pushing out growth for into the, the the upcoming quarters as well as well into into next year. So it's not growth that we're losing; it's just kind of getting postponed. There's no derailment. Uh, there's just a postponement, if you will, on yeah. on growth. So in that sort of context, I think that yields should continue to rise and inflation expectations
2: perhaps continue to rise as well. It it is, though, Sebadri, the classic EM dilemma. An EM central banker often confronts upside inflation risk, downside growth risk, and often they do one thing, thing, they hike. I'm trying to understand what DM central banks are going to do through next year. Will they have the patience, do you think, the tolerance to sit this one through?
6: I think they will. I think that, you know, like uh, I think Fed, Fed Vice Chair Clarida said they want to really see what the inflation prints are up to the end of the year and beyond to see if there is a really a persistence of you know, of inflation. So they're not going to really rush into guiding the markets towards hiking or rate hikes anytime soon. Uh, they're still focused on the taper announcement, which is probably going to come in November, regardless of what happens to the unemployment report on Friday. I think beyond that, they're going to need to see some consistent pressure, supply chain pressures, wage pressures before they start thinking about hacking rates. But what they're doing right now is setting up for the ability to be uh, to raise rates in the second half of, of next year by finishing the tapering perhaps by the middle of next year.
3: Subhadra, they are going to be tapering bonds at a time when there is this market deceleration in growth. And I do want to circle back to this idea of the S-word, the stag- stagflation debate. How high can yields get? If we do experience an environment like that, not later this year, but even next year, as some of those bond purchases start to wear off, and as we start to see a more normalized economy with these supply chain disruptions still in full force.
6: So I think the tapering of asset purchases on margin should actually help push yields higher, if anything. I mean, our forecast, we think the 10 years probably get to. You know, two and a quarter by the, by the third quarter of next year. So that's sort of the the time frame that we're looking at a very gradual rise in, in yields. Um, I think that over the last couple of weeks, the market has very meaningfully priced in a much more faster pace of rate hikes. So that's putting some pressure uh, in the belly of the curve. Right now, I think the market seems quite efficiently priced for hikes for the, for the next you know, three years up to 2024. We just need more data for the market to be able to price in uh, perhaps a much more uh, faster uh, pace of, of hikes from here on. So really, I think there's going to be a very gradual repricing higher as we get data over the upcoming quarters.
3: How much potential is there for significant policy risk due to the composition of the Federal Reserve at a time when it's increasingly politicized? Who will be the next Fed
6: chair? Um, I think that there is some policy risk. Clearly, I still I still view that uh, I think Chair, Chairman Powell gets a, gets another uh, ex, you know extension in his term. Um, but for the most part, I think if the composition changes, I think that uh, the composition might actually turn more dovish. So, if anything, again, more caution, more accommodation is probably uh, how the composition will change. So you know, the big scheme of things, you know, the Fed is an independent body and they're going to look at fundamentals before they make any sort of uh, major changes in their policy. So I'm not necessarily concerned about any change in the composition per se.
2: Sivadra, thank you. As always, Sivadra Ajapadar of SOCGEN, U.S. rate strategy head.
0: The first time in this pandemic, we welcome Mr. Rubenstein into our studios. Thank you so much for joining us here.
7: My pleasure, Tom. It took you,
0: what, three days to get into the building?
7: Oh, no, it's a little more complicated, but it's worth it. Well,
0: Mike's really done a great job of trying to make it. You know, not not comfortable, but just process driven. So we get it. Maybe that's going to be uh, the future for business. Julie Sweet has to deal with this at Accenture. She's taking a different path to get here. First of all, tell us how the Columbia Law grad is different from what we see at McKinsey
7: and the others. Well, remember, Accenture is a publicly traded company. It has a market cap of twenty percent per year the last ten years. Right, more than two hundred billion dollars in market cap. So it's one of the largest companies in the world run by a woman, and uh, she is trained as a lawyer, not as a consultant. And they are one of the biggest. They are the, now the biggest consulting firm in the world, Accenture, which was a spinoff of Arthur Anderson many years ago. And they've just done a better job in building their presence around the world. They have now six hundred and twenty-four thousand employees.
0: What I find interesting here, and she's really, from 2019, really pushed the needle, I would suggest, on this and as an example to other corporations, is the the reigning debate of work from home. How do the best and brightest work from home versus work from the Carlisle office?
7: Well, it turns out that uh, during COVID, people that have technology skills can work from home. Now, as you know, businesses are now saying, we want to get our employees back. But during COVID, when you had to work from home, Accenture did a great job of of doing this with their clients. They worked remotely with their clients, and it worked out so well that they had to add 100,000 employees during the COVID period of time.
3: David? One of the reasons why I found it so fascinating that you, of all people, interviewed Julie Sweet. Is first of all, you're a fantastic interviewer, but also uh, she has a law degree. She was a law firm partner. That is how she came into this company, and you also have a law degree from the University of Chicago. What is the intersection that you see as increasingly relevant or not going forward of having a law degree in business in the changing world we're in now?
7: Well, uh, she was a partner at Crevasse, Swain & Moore. And I was a summer associate there. Uh, she was uh, much more senior than I ever was at that firm. But she showed that she was really, really analytical, could get along with clients. And I think a law degree helps you reason well. Uh, clearly, a lot of CEOs have law degrees. Obviously, some have MBAs. But a law degree gives you a certain grounding and a certain way of thinking logically about things. And clearly, it helps you solve problems. And so I think she thinks her law degree really has helped her uh, run Accenture. And I should point out that she runs it without any headquarters. Accenture has no headquarters. She's based in in Washington, but it's one of the few companies in the world of any size that doesn't have a corporate headquarters.
3: So you have that on one side, or basically she's saying, you guys don't have to have uh, a seat in the office. You can work from home. We can make it work. And then you have others, uh, particularly on Wall Street, where people are saying, if you don't get back to the office, you probably are making a mistake if you're a junior employee. Where do you weigh in on this?
7: I think most employers would prefer to have their employees in the the office a few days a week. I think uh, Wall Street people are saying, come on back at least a couple days a week, maybe not five days a week, but at least a couple days a week. I think J.P. Morgan, Goldman Sachs, and others are wanting their employees back in the office, but not necessarily in five days a week, the same hours as before. I think... uh, Private equity firms are largely the same. We would like to have people come back when it's safe to come back, but it may not be that people will come back and work five days a week the same kind of way that they did before. And that way, COVID has really changed the way people are going to work for quite some time.
0: What does it do for business travel? What you know, the airlines are talking premiumed. Uh, excuse me, business class to premium. There's all this jump through hoops. What's it actually do to business travel?
7: While well, business travel was down on the on the airlines, uh, leisure travel is beginning to come back better than business travel. Business people have realized that you can you can do things uh, remotely and certainly by Zoom or Zoom equivalent without having to so travel. So you and I don't need to go to Davos. I think uh, when you have a large gathering of people, it probably is helpful to get together occasionally. And Davos is once a year, so I think if you weren't to, weren't going to go, I
0: agree a hundred percent. Yeah. What about Accenture? What about well, Accenture, Accenture
7: and the Accenture is dealing with clients remotely. They can deal with them uh, in person, but I think if you once you have the relationship, you can work on a project remotely and probably help solve it. But I do think if you don't ever see your clients, I think there's a downside to it. And I think most businesses now realize you've got to have some interpersonal. Mm-hmm if you're really going to have your employees be mentored and your clients feel like that people are paying attention to them.
3: David, this is a crucial conversation also to have on the cusp, on the eve of the jobs report that we get on Friday at a time when a lot of companies are complaining about not being able to find the workers to hire, etc. hired 100,000 of them. How much are you hearing from Julie Sweet and from other uh, executives who you speak to? How willing are they to pay up for employees, to, for, for talent at this moment, given what we seem to be uh, seeing, which is friction and shortages.
7: Well, as we all know, companies that are in the technology world and financial service world have done extremely well. They can afford to pay up, and they are trying to pay up. I think the biggest problem is that uh, entry-level kind of jobs, the kind of people that are working at large private equity firms or consulting firms, um, they are not as difficult to get, though they're harder to get than they used to be. But it's getting people to work at McDonald's or the equivalent entry-level jobs, a lot of those people are not willing to work at minimum wage or even slightly above minimum wage. Now, that's where the real problem is, I think, in the economy.
0: The other day, David Rubenstein, I've got to leave with this, with your public service to the nation, with James Earl Carter. It's as if Lincoln was alive in 1906. Jimmy Carter, 97th birthday. What did we get wrong? With all the criticisms of the era, the dismal 70s, what did we most get wrong about President Carter?
7: Well, he tried to do so many things that— while he got a lot of them done, the fact that he didn't get everything done made people think he wasn't as successful as he really was. Today, if a president gets one major bill done in a year, that's a big thing. Carter was getting many done, but he was trying to get even more done. So Mm -hmm. I think we underestimated uh, his capabilities. And also in hindsight, uh, some of the issues he challenged, he he, he attacked like human rights abroad were things that were ahead of his time. But in the end, uh, I want to wish him a happy 97th birthday like everybody else. And I think his ex-presidency or post-presidency has been a real model for all presidents of the United States.
0: David, thank you so much. David Rubenstein, this is an important interview. Julie Sweet is out front at Accenture trying to figure out modern technology and business. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for Insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations, and subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keene, and this is Bloomberg.